Good morning, church family. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Sing his praises, all peoples. For his mercy toward us is great, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. And so we're going to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs this morning to do just that. So yes, let's stand together and let's sing this together. Sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing Tune my heart to sing Thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me
Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Oh, thy day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. For I know Fellowship. Um, we're so happy that you're here. My name is Caroline Turner, and I work here in the student ministry with 7th through 12th graders and their leaders. Um, and one of my favorite parts about my job is seeing leaders get plugged in to serving. I love hearing about what the Lord teaches them about himself, and I love seeing the Lord using their gifts to edify and build up the body. So if you're here this morning and you haven't started serving yet, but it's something that's been on your mind, um, we have a couple of serving opportunities for you guys. We have some needs. First, we have needs here um, in here on Sunday mornings, um, helping with ushering, um, and also helping out in the parking lot, helping to direct traffic. Um, and if you've left here on a Sunday morning, you know that there is a lot of traffic here. Um, and so we just wanted to make you guys aware that there is a south exit over this way um, that is underused. And so if you're wanting to help alleviate some traffic on Sunday mornings, try using the south exit. Um, we also have a couple of FSM announcements for you guys. We have some fun things that are coming up. First, we have our barn bash. Um, it's for our seventh and eighth grade students, and it's gonna be on November 2nd, coming up in a few weeks on a Wednesday night, and it's from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. It'll be at the Washington County Fairgrounds with the Rogers, Springdale, and Bentonville FSM students, and it's going to be so much fun. We're gonna have a photo booth, games, line dancing and fun treats and snacks. Um, and if you have a seventh and eighth grader that hasn't been plugged into FSM yet, this is a great night to bring them. Our team would love to meet them. And more importantly, we would love to help greet them into their cell group and help them find a home over in FSM. The last announcement is that today um, in our FSM room, we have our FSM spring break trip meeting. Um, and so if you're, you're a parent of a student 7th through 12th grade and you do not have your spring break plan solidified yet, please come to one of these meetings. We have one after the 9 o'clock service and the 1030, and we've got an option for every single grade ranging from 7th through 12th grade. If you're wanting your student to grow in basic faith principles, unity, 
learning about refugee ministry, church planning, cross-cultural ministry. We have so many options that are really awesome that our staff has worked really hard to plan and design to help our students grow in our vision of seeing them behold Jesus, belong together, and to become disciples. So please come to one of those spring break meetings. We'll break down every trip and we'll answer whatever questions you might have. Um, but that's all I've got. And so I'm gonna pray for us and we're going to continue on in a time of worship. Father, thank you for who you are. God, would you remind us of your presence this morning um, as we're gathered together corporately to worship and to learn? God, would you reveal to us that the, in the places that you've gifted us, um, God, so that we can glorify you um, for the sake of others and edifying and building up the body, but also to live in the abundance of the life that you've called us to, um, that only you can provide an offer. And so we love you. Um, would you tune our hearts um, to hear from you this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand? We're gonna continue in worship this morning. We're gonna continue by um, engaging in a corporate confession, confessing our need for a savior. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a savior. And church, if, if you've given your life to Christ, if you believe in his life, death, resurrection, you've chosen to follow him, then there's good news for us. And so church, believe the good news that Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ is my firm foundation. He's the rock on which I stand. Everything around is shaking. Oh, I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus. He's
in light of the, the passage we're gonna be studying here in just a second. Um, a few weeks ago, we reached out to um, some other churches in the area uh, and we, we asked them to send us some prayer requests. And so I uh, want to challenge us all as a church to be in prayer for other gospel teaching churches in this area because we're all a part of the same mission to glorify God, to spread this gospel, this good news. And so for the next few weeks, we're gonna show um, some video clips from um, some different pastors and church leaders in the area. And they're just gonna share some of the prayer requests that they have, uh, a couple of prayer requests from each church. And so um, the first one's gonna be this morning. And so if you would just turn your attention to the screen and let's listen to these words. Let's take these to heart. Let's pray for these churches this week. Hey, Fellowship, thanks for praying. We uh, we actually, as a church, went through a season recently that we called the 21 Days of Dependence, where we, we as a body, uh, sought to remind ourselves uh, that God is our helper and that we're dependent on Him. And so uh, we're, we're learning that as a body, and, and so thanks for stepping into that with us. 
Uh, one thing you can be praying for us, we, uh, we're actually in the midst of a pastoral transition. Our, our founding pastor, Hunter Bailey, moved to Memphis in August. And, and even if a transition is good for his family or for a church, transition is still hard. And so, um, so that's what we're walking through. And so you can pray that the Lord would provide the right person to lead our body in the, the days and years ahead. We, we feel great about who we are as a church, and we want to continue to grow in the gospel and bless the city and, and pursue kingdom community, which are our aims. And, and so we, we need help to that end. And so would you pray that the Lord would provide the right person for us in that? And, and I also pray that the Lord would uh, build up in us as a people uh, ownership of, of who we are uh, in ourselves as a people. And so that we would, as a people, grow in the gospel, bless the city, and pursue kingdom community. So thanks for praying. Well, hi, my name is Ben Wilson. I'm the lead pastor at Harvest Fayetteville. Thank you so much for praying for our church. I know you've prayed for our church over the years, and I know from the testimony of people at our church that we've been richly blessed by that and that we have felt your prayers. When I think about right now in the life of our church and ways that you could be praying for us, really I'm drawn to the ways that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus in the letter of Ephesians. You know, he prays for their hearts. He asks that God would have Christ dwell richly in their hearts. He prays for their minds, that God would give them minds to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. He prays that their whole being would be filled up with all the fullness of all that God is. And uh, I can't imagine a better prayer request for our church than that. You could also pray for us in the same way that Paul asked the Ephesian church to pray for him over in chapter 6 of the letter. He asked that they uh, pray so that he would preach the gospel with boldness. And that's something that we are working on here at Harvest, and we're excited about the work God is doing in our community as we go out and proclaim the gospel with our neighbors, with our classmates, with our co-workers. And so you can be praying that we have the boldness in that work uh, that God has called us to have. Thanks again for your prayers, and we'll be praying for you as well. It's pretty cool, right? Pretty cool. Let's be praying for the other churches uh, in our area, in our city, um, that we'd be united together to see the message of the king, the benevolent king, the good king, the savior, to go out. We'd see lives changed in our city. Good morning. How are we? Good. That's pretty good. I'll take that. Uh, I'm Garland. Great to be with you. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I used to be one of the student ministry pastors here for about 10 years, and I got the privilege of pastoring many of your kids in the room and uh, leading their cell groups and fall retreats and all that stuff. And uh, one of my favorite experiences, and I know many of us have had a similar experience, was uh, every year we would take the, uh, the students out to Colorado in the summer. So it wasn't a ski trip. It was more of a, a hiking. And we'd go to like a little Bible school out there. We'd spend time in God's word. And uh, one of my favorite experiences, one of my like, all-time great memories of my life, uh, we would take students up on some of these relatively high mountains, especially for Arkansas standards. And if you ever had the experience, uh, it, can be, it can be a really amazing and also it can be a really frightening experience going up on these high mountains. There was one that was, that was pretty high, and we were uh, taking a group of ninth graders up, uh, up on this mountain, and we had told them, hey, you got to be careful when, when storms come in. You got to keep an eye on the clouds because a storm could come in and get kind of dangerous, especially when you're above tree line. Well, sure enough, we, we get going, and about an hour in, we finally kind of got out of the tree line, and you're already getting tired because you're at elevation, and we're working our way up to the summit because there's nothing like getting to the top and being able to see out and seeing everything in a 360 
view. And there, was a, there were some boulder fields we had to cross, and uh, we're above the tree line at this point. It got to this place uh, on this hike where there was a pretty narrow pass on uh, basically a cliffside, kind of think below. It wasn't a sheer cliff, but it was really steep down below us, and it was a several hundred foot drop, and there was a mountain on this side. And uh, as we're going along, and the summit's like just right above us, as we're going along this particular spot, keep in mind, I've got ninth graders with me, we came to a place where the snowpack had not melted yet on this trail. And what people that I've gone before us had done is they had basically carved in the snow a little footpath about this wide. And so you're taking your feet and you're holding the snowpack and you're going like this. I told the students to be selective with what they shared with their parents when we got back, okay? Because you're crossing this snowpack like this. We had one student, he was like, I can't do it, I can't do it. So we actually hiked him down, kind of through the boulders, down the pretty severe slope, down about six, 700 feet below, and then up around the snowpack. He's like, I can't do it. And then we finally made it across the snowpack, and we reached the top, and if you've ever had the experience, there's nothing like it, where you finally get to the peak, and you can look around, and see the mountaintops around, and see the valleys below, and as the, as the mountains turn into the valleys, you can see these rivers that you didn't even know were there, and things that you had seen before from below now seem so small in comparison from having the 360 panoramic view of a summit. If you've never had the experience, it's amazing. If you have, you know what I'm talking about. That view is the letter to the Ephesians, okay? As we've been studying this letter, here Tom Wright, he's a New Testament scholar, articulating the book of Ephesians. I think he gets it exactly right. He says, Ephesians, like a panoramic photograph, like a huge 360 view, it covers a huge sweep of territory with many different elements held together in a single view. There are stunning peaks and distant glimpses, but the point is that the author has stood back and tried to express it all, all of the gospel message and its implications at once. That is why some have referred to it as the crown of Paulinism, the place where all of it comes together in a single frame. Have you enjoyed it? Okay, we should be done. Uh, have you enjoyed it? We've been studying this amazing letter, trying to get the 360 view of the gospel and its implications in our lives and in this world. Now, to finish the story, sure enough, the clouds did come in on our, on our hike that day. And they were bad clouds, like the ones that have lightning in them. And we're way above tree line, ninth graders. And I said, guys, we had a guy with us. We were like, we're gonna have to run down the, the, the pass, down the boulder field. And so for about an hour and a half, sheer downpour, you can hear the rumbling. We sprinted down to tree line. And it was one of the best days of my entire life. I'll never forget uh, that experience. Some of your kids were with me. They had a great time. They came back safe. Okay, here we go. So if you... If you want to see the mountain peaks of this letter, let me show you where we've been and where we're going, okay? Where we've been is we've spent the last several weeks looking at these first three chapters. After Paul introduces himself, he's going to give us an insight into the calling of the church. By the way, write these kinds of outlines down. If you don't like, if you don't like a horizontal chart like this, Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two, Roman numeral three, put them in a note on your phone, put them in your Bible. You write this down, okay? It helps you see the peaks, we saw the calling of the church, who we are in Christ. What are we called to? What's our standing in Christ? And if you've been here, you've seen, it's some amazing things we've been looking at. There is one command, just one, in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And the command is remember. It's not even an action word, okay? As we turn to the second half, 
as we now look at this next big mountain peak, we're gonna get the 360 views of in light of our calling, now how do we act? The conduct of the church. Then Paul's gonna drop us all in the middle of a battlefield and say, you're in one, if you didn't know it. This is where we're going in the second half of the letter. And you can see it transition in chapter four, verse one, where we're gonna pick it up today. Therefore, if you look in your Bible, if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead with me, Ephesians chapter four. By the way, let me commend you. If you brought your paper Bible in here, let me commend you, notebook, to take notes. When we're studying the Bible, always come ready, okay? Therefore, Paul says, that therefore, box it, double underline it, circle it. Whatever you do with transition words, if you don't have a system, I double underline transition words. Therefore, Paul's rooting back to everything that's come before. He says, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you to walk. This verb, to walk, peripateo in Greek, to walk, it will dominate this next section, okay? I'm urging you to walk. The conduct of your life needs to match who you've been called in the first three. If that's true of you, then you need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And this section is loaded with commands, loaded with imperatives. And we're gonna see that all of it is expressed in the context of the body of Christ. The unity of the body of Christ. Here's where we're gonna go this morning. Here's our outline. Paul's been, he's been thundering this theme of Jesus' victory and he can't let it go. So we're gonna, we're gonna see it here as well, the decisive victory in Jesus. But then it's gonna have a very surprising demonstration the decisive victory of Jesus over sin and death will be manifested in a way that to me seems anticlimactic and surprising. And lastly, it's gonna come with some demands for you and for me. This is where we're going this morning. If you haven't yet, go with me. Ephesians chapter four, and let's get to work here. First, let's see this amazing victory that Paul has in mind. As Paul is discussing, he's talking about the distribution of gifts to the people in the church. We're gonna come back to it in a minute but his mind begins to wander as, he's dis- as he writes verse seven. I can't help but think that as his mind is writing that and as he's putting this, this letter together, his mind wanders to Psalm 68. He's reminded of this psalm, and he quotes it. Now, there's debate on his quotation. Your Bible probably maybe has a footnote here. If not, listen to sermon notes this week. If you go, I'm gonna show you Psalm 68. You're gonna see some differences. There's a lot of debate as to what is Paul doing as he quotes the Old Testament here and elsewhere, okay? But he goes to Psalm 68, and he says this, that Jesus, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, he's applying Psalm 68 to Jesus. Let me show you Psalm 68. It's a psalm. As the psalmist is reflecting, he writes a a song or a hymn to describe Yahweh's victorious processional. Yahweh has been successful in battle over the enemies of God's people. And as he ascends back to his throne on Mount Zion, the psalmist begins to show us a picture of that ascension. And he says, the people have come by the thousands and the thousands to worship God. And there's our quote. When you ascended on high, you took captives and received gifts from people. Here's the image he's working with. We know it. When a team has a great victory, they have the big victory parade. And the thousands come out to bow before these athletes because you conquered the enemy in victory. We see the same thing in in a military setting, both ancient and modern. In the ancient Roman world, here's how it would go. A Roman emperor or general would have a decisive victory somewhere 
distant from Rome. And as they came back into the capital, the emperor would go first on his chariots. And then behind him, the conquering generals and the army. Behind them, the spoils of war, the treasure that they've looted from the enemy's territory. And lastly, the captives come walking in in chains as the thousands celebrate the emperor and they boo the captives. This is the image that Paul is working with, the decisive victory, the victory party afterwards. And he says, he takes this image of Psalm 68, he applies it to Jesus. He says, Jesus has accomplished an amazing victory. This image of Yahweh defeating his, the enemies of God's people, he says, that's been done decisively, powerfully in Jesus. He's gonna unpack what that looks like. Now, there's also huge debate on verse nine. Guess what? Sermon notes is for you to go and wade into these, these weightier, kind of deeper issues. Big debate on verse nine, but many scholars, two big opinions, but many scholars think what he's talking about here is where did Jesus accomplish the victory? In his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's the decisive moment where the world can see that Jesus has won. Now, right off the bat, that's pretty sweet, right? I mean, as Paul is working this image, if you don't get a little bit of goosebumps on you, you gotta check your spiritual pulse this morning. Like, the victory over sin and death has been won in Jesus. Pretty sweet, right? Now, thank you, I'll take some amens, appreciate that. Now, when you have a great victory, we know this as humans, when you have a great victory, how do you manifest that? What did you do to show I won? And as I was thinking about that question, I realized we have a whole industry designed to do just that. We have an entire industry of people making little tiny, usually they're just very cheaply made trophies that say, I accomplished this feat. I came in first. Now I recognize we now find ourselves in the everybody gets a trophy generation where no matter if you finish last, you get a trophy. Can I tell you, if you're in that generation, it used to be you had to win to get the trophy. It at least finished in the top three to get a trophy. Now everybody gets a trophy. Now, I get it. We've got an entire industry essentially designed to show off that we won. And it could be in sports, it could be in debate, it could be in sales, whatever it may be, we have an industry designed to help you show off that you won. We have a taxidermy industry to design to show that you conquered the deer. Like we have a whole industry for this. Now I will say this, it's kind of cute when you're in like eighth grade, you know, sixth grade. If you are an adult and you still have your childhood trophies on display somewhere in your house, it's time to put them in a box, all right? Put them in the attic. No, nobody cares that you won in sixth grade in some race, all right? Nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear about that. But we, we know this. I got to thinking about when somebody wins the lottery. By the way, the biggest lottery jackpot was $1.56 billion with a B dollars. I don't play the lottery. I'm like, man, it's a lot of money, okay? When somebody wins the lottery, I was researching this this week. So I was like, how, how many people do end up losing it all, and it's staggering. The amount of people that win the lottery, some vast amount of money, and then in a matter of years have squandered it all. And it's not hard to figure out where and how they do it. They gotta get the trophies, the things that demonstrate they've won, the cars, the house, the trips, uh, the vacation, 
all of it, the yachts. We gotta show, what good is it to have won all that money if you can't show it off? So they show off the trophies. We see the same thing. We already saw it with sports. We already saw it in a military setting. When we conquer the ground, your flag goes up. We've conquered this. We have won. And I was thinking about, if I'm God, okay, if I'm God and I've known that I have accomplished a decisive victory over sin and death in the world, what will I do? Just, I was thinking about this question this past week because I got really surprised by how Paul will answer this. How will I demonstrate that I have won? And the first thing that came to my mind was this. You know when like furniture stores open or like car dealerships, they put those spinning spotlight things in their parking lot. It shines up in the sky and you can see it for miles. You go, must have a new furniture store, got a new car dealership. Like, you, you know these things, right? There's one I saw what it's the other day. And I was thinking about it going, if I'm God, I'm gonna do something like that. Some dramatic display in the sky. Lightning's gonna crash and the sun's gonna turn dark and the moon's gonna turn a different color. It's gonna be a huge set of miracles I'm gonna accomplish. It's gonna be like really obvious and big. That's what I would do. Can I show you what Paul has in mind for the way that the decisive victory will be demonstrated in the world? Just, just see it. Here's the full passage. Let me show you the whole passage. I know you can't read it. All 16 verses of our passage. And let me just highlight some of the themes for you in this. He wants the gathered assembly to love each other. He repeats it three times, in love, in love, in love. Unity shows up over and over and over. The concept of oneness. We're one body with one spirit, sevenfold oneness. He talks about us being a body. What's a body? It's one unified organism that moves together, but it's made up of various parts. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. Can I summarize it for you? Paul thinks, it's such a strange thing. It seems so anticlimactic to me. How will we show the world that Jesus has won when a diverse community can come together in unity and love? You know what we call this thing? The church when a diverse community can come together in unity and love, Paul says, that'll show them. That'll tell them that Jesus has really won. And as I was working on this, I was thinking, it's gotta be more than that. I mean, look at the language he's gonna use. You can see it in verse two. It says, be completely humble and gentle. This is the kind of community I'm calling. Be patient, bear with one another, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And as he, as he will continue later, he's reaching back into chapter three. Look at what he'd already said this last chapter. He said it was God's intent that now through the what? Through the church, a group of called out ones. But notice what he says, that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is the instrument by which the world will see. When a group of people that come from different backgrounds can come together in unity and in love. Here's why. See, there's a rival conception in Paul's day. There's a rival idea of how we will unite the nations. There's a rival idea of how we will bring unity and harmony to the tribes of the world. And it's under this guy. This is Octavian. He later becomes Octavian Augustus. Augustus means most high. He's the first of the great, all-powerful Caesars. And Octavian Augustus had declared, we are bringing the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It's also known as the Pax Augustus to the world. The peace of Augustus. We're bringing this peace to the world. 
We'll unite the tribes. Now, how did Rome unite the peoples? They did bring diversity and unity together, but how did they do it? They did it through swords and crosses. It looks like this. You be unified with us or we will kill you. That's how it looks. The great Pax Romana. This is the world that Paul finds himself in. You know, as I think about it, for all of human history, we've had conceptions and declarations of unity. We've had promises of uniting the peoples, uniting the disparate tribes, uniting the ethnic groups together. Economic systems promise to do it. Political systems say they can do it. Parties say they can do it. Nation states say they can do it. Families say they can do it. Communities say they can do it. And yet, look at the history of humanity. The history of humanity tells a story of brokenness and division and polarization and demonization and tribes looking at their own bottom line at the expense of other ones. It's true in the ancient world. It's true in the modern world. I mean, just, just for a moment, think about the division that we experience even in our own democratic nation. The, the division, the hostility, the demonization. Every party's saying that they're gonna unite us. But they've always been saying that. But they're always over-promising and under-delivering. We haven't found something beautiful enough and compelling enough to really unite the diverse tribes. And by the way, if you're here and you're going, man, I don't know about that. I don't know if, I, I don't know if, if I'm that. I don't think I'm as tribal as that. I don't think I think that way. Just look at the nationalism in our world. Look at the tribalism in our world. Look at the division. Some of us may fall into that. You don't think that you, I was, I was really convicted by this, in the global village that we live in right now, it's so easy for me and my tribe here to not even consider the conditions of somebody on the other side of the world that are working in adject poverty to make something that I can buy cheap or to keep my gas price low when I go to the gas pump. I don't even think about it because my bottom line is all I'm thinking about, tribalism. Do you see it? And Paul is offering a different way to be human. He says, when we come together in Christ, we found something beautiful enough and compelling enough to push all those things aside, to, to, in, to still have our diversity, but to find something beautiful enough to unite us. He says, this through the church will show the world. You see why this is it? This, of course, has to be it, not billboards in the sky. This is the best way for God to do it. Uh, Michael showed us his quote last week, and I thought it was so good, I brought it back. John Stott, he says, it would be hard to exaggerate the grandeur of this vision. The new society God has brought together into being is nothing short of a new creation, a new human race whose characteristic is no longer alienation, but reconciliation, no longer division and hostility, but unity and peace. This is what Paul is sending out into the world. It's called the church. Jesus commissioned it. It's a surprising demonstration for sure, and it's gonna come with some teeth. It's gonna come with some demands. Look at, look at our passage, chapter four, verse two. Paul says, be humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another and be loving and you know, keep the bond of peace. And I think a lot of us read that and we go, okay, I get it, Garland, I get it, I get it. We're Christians, a lot of us in the room. It's, it says be nice. Okay, I need to be nicer. I'm gonna try to be nice. And when we do that, we can flatten out 
the demands of this passage. Here's what I mean. Let me drop you into this ancient culture. This is ancient Asia, after all, Asia, modern-day Turkey. And this letter is written to the churches on this western shore, and you see Ephesus right there in the middle. And Ephesus is a, a multicultural city. We've already talked about it. It's an it's a ethnically diverse city. It's got many, many different temples to many, many different gods. It's a port city. I like to think of it as the Los Angeles of the ancient Roman Empire. It's a large city. Different ideas, different peoples, different backgrounds, different ethnicities are all mingling in this city. And in that city, let me drop you into a house church, okay? Uh, This is what first century house churches, they would meet in a place that looks kind of like this. This is an ancient Roman atrium. Now, you gotta imagine it not all kind of beat down, but beautiful and painted. And if you were wealthy enough to host a house church, it probably looked like this, okay? So this letter is being dropped in and read in a place that looks like this. No stage, no face mics, okay? This is the church. And I want you to imagine into this room, we've got a handful of Jewish families. Paul showed up to Ephesus and he's talking about Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And they've walked in and they've really believed it. Jesus is our Messiah. And as they walk in, they're not exactly sure who's gonna show up this week. But for them, all their life and generations before them, they have looked at every Gentile as a subhuman dog. To step foot into the house of a Gentile To touch them, to touch what they cook with, to touch what they eat would make me ceremonially unclean and cut off from my people. Therefore, the the Jewish population, oftentimes, they they get together in small clusters of neighborhoods in these cities, and they avoid everybody else because it makes them unclean, and they see them as suspicious. They look at those other people as dogs, and in walk the Jewish families, and they're looking across, and then a few minutes later, in walks a handful of Roman families. These are Ephesian families. They're uncircumcised. They've never been to the temple. They've never read the Torah. But Paul showed up and started talking about this guy named Jesus, and they said, that's our new king. But they have always, for generations, looked at the Jews as subversive, as lazy, as suspicious. They don't trust them. They don't worship our gods. We can't, we can't really sit down with them because we don't understand you guys. Artemis' temple had and many temples in the ancient world had cult prostitution. So in walks a woman, and she formerly was a prostitute at one of the temples in town. And one of the Romans used to go there and worship. But now she's found this new king, this new God named Jesus, and she walks in and sits down with curiosity in her eyes, but as she walks in, every head turns. And she walks in under shame. And then in walks uh, one of the priests formerly at Poseidon's temple down the road, and they, he's heard the message of Jesus, and he's brought with him his family, and everybody in there looks at him and goes, why is he here? He handles the meat sacrifice at the temple. He can't even be here, and the Jews, all the Jewish family goes, no way. And yet all of them have found something beautiful, something compelling, something big enough, something grand enough that they could come into that room and look each other in the eye. Now, in that context, look at Paul's words. Okay, do you see the demand that this would be? Be completely humble and gentle. Hey, Roman, Roman soldier, I know for generations now you've used your power and force to get your will. Be gentle. Hey, Jewish family, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Can you be patient? They don't get it. They've never read Torah. They're trying to figure this out. They're not circumcised. We've, everything's been changed in Jesus. I know that's hard to wrap your mind around. Everybody, everybody, hey, bear with one another in love. 
Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Do you see the bite that this would have? You see the demand that this would make? Paul says you are one. With one you were called with one hope. In one body, in one spirit, with one Lord. It's not the, the God and the, 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 the Father of the Jews and the God and the Father of the Romans. No, you've been united under one God who is Lord over all and through all and in all. He's gonna continue, by the way, the oneness that is in the diverse persons of the Trinity. He says, that's what I'm wanting you to express. Michael told you last week, when you see Trinity tightly together in a passage, just put the triangle in there so you can see the oneness reflected in three persons in one God, that's what you're reflecting as you come together. I'll say, speak the truth in love. This is gonna be hard for you guys, so speak the truth in love. Now, let me drop you into some more modern context. You can imagine walking into a room in India, a former Indian Hindu and Indian Muslim, but they found something grander in Jesus, but imagine the difficulty they're gonna have as they were formerly violent towards one another. Or imagine dropping into right now in Eastern Europe, Ukraine and Russia, they found something grander in Jesus, but imagine the tension as they come together in that house church. They come together in that room. Oh, let's bring it close to home. What about for you? Is there a person, a group of people, an entire group of people that in you, you see and you go, not them in here. No, 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 they don't get to come in here. Or you haven't made every effort to keep the unity of the bond of peace. This is so much more than just being nice. Paul means for us to fight for unity, for you and for me. It's a demanding vision that he has for the church we're not gonna fall into it accidentally. He doesn't leave us there, though. Here's what he says. He says, to each one of us, grace has been given. A gift has been given, verse seven. Meaning to each one. Every single one of you, if you are in Christ in the room, you have a unique part to play. You have been made unique and special in Jesus. There's no haves and have-nots in this thing called the church. You're uniquely gifted and you have a part to play as Christ has apportioned it. And he's gonna reflect on some of those gifts in verse 11. He says, he's given some as leaders in the church, those that would go and found the church, apostles and the prophets, and those that would continue the church, evangelists and pastors and teachers. These gifted people, these gifted leaders. Now here's, gonna, here's what he says they do. This is an all-time favorite verse for fellowship. We love this verse, underline it, circle it. If you don't know we love this verse, I'm telling you right now, verse 12. Why does the church exist? I want you to see our, one of our favorite verses in its context. Look at verse 12. Why do we exist? To equip. The word is katartismon. It means to enable something to be what it was designed for, to be all that it can be, what it was created for, to equip God's people for what? service. We might serve one another. That's what the church is for. That's what this church is for, to help you be all that God has created you to be and how you can serve, lay your life down for other people. He continues. Now, I'm going to show you how these clauses intersect. 
Chapter four, 11 through 16 is all one long sentence. When I put it all in a paragraph, I was like, okay, I'm kind of losing my way. Let me show you how these clauses intersect. Christ gave the gifted people in the church, not so they get all the glory and they do all the work. No, why? To enable God's people to be all they're meant to be for a purpose, that we would serve one another. But there's a goal. We often, I think, leave this out when we quote this passage here. Here's the goal. So that, double underline it, the body of Christ, the body might be built up until three goals. Notice the goals. Until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Become a mature man in Christ. Attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is the church. This is its calling. This is why it exists. When it happens, it is a new human race, a new people called out into the world with reconciliation and unity and peace. Now, here's how we close. This is really hard, right? When you really start to think about it, this has got some challenge to you and to me. It's a demanding vision. It was in the ancient world, it is now. How do we get the power to do this? Where does the source of our power come to be this selfless? to actually cross over the dividing walls that divide us and reach out in service and love? How do we do this in Christ? He's given it away. It's in this parentheses in verse nine to 10. He says, what does he ascended mean? If, he had, if he's ascending, it means he also came down to the lower earthly regions. In Philippians, he'll say it this way. He says, consider Jesus who Although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. He came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, for you and for me. Where do we get the power to do this, to be this kind of sacrificial, to fight for this kind of unity? We behold the sacrifice of Jesus. This is how far he was willing to come for you and for me. What does it mean that he ascended? That he also descended. He stooped all the way down by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you, for me. For this reason, he's been highly exalted. He says it here in verse 10. We behold Jesus. That's the source of our power. That's the source of our unity. When we do that, it enables us, it frees us to go in love and sacrifice and serve others, even ones that are difficult for us too. And that all comes together. The unity and the love of a diverse community, it tells the world something really powerful. By the way, the world desperately needs it. And you were created for it, to live in this kind of a community, to model this kind of a community in Christ. So may we be it? Let me pray for us. Jesus, it's my prayer right now as, as our king. You are calling your people, your church, to live this out, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so as I've been reflecting these last couple of weeks, the people in my life that I would have a hard time and have had a hard time maintaining the unity of the bonds of peace. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, we confess that so often we run to thinking about us, 
our crew, our family, our people. And it's so easy for us to look at people that we disagree with. It's so easy for us to look at people that maybe don't talk like us or sound like us and to be suspicious. So Lord, we're sorry. We thank you that we found something big enough, beautiful enough, compelling enough to genuinely and truly unite us. That's what you've done for us, Jesus. So may we be a people that walk in the hope and the confidence of that because it tells the watching world that you are the king. It matters. So help us to walk in humility, mercy, and grace today. We ask it in your name, Jesus, our king. Amen. Church in unity, would you stand, sing these words with us?
just, just think for a moment with me. Other side of the world and where Jesus came. 2,000 years later, I would guess mostly Gentiles in the room, singing about the united humanity of Jesus, the risen King. And nothing helps me to, to get our unity than hearing our voices together. So I want you to close your eyes and sing with me just these familiar words, amazing grace, and hear the voices around uniting to declare the grace of our King. Amazing grace. Church, may we be that this week. If you need prayer, we'll pray with you right through these doors. If you want to celebrate with somebody, we pray with you right through these doors. Have a great, blessed week. We love you, Fellowship Fayetteville. Have a wonderful week of worship. See you next week.